0: Today, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. We're going to be looking at the the theology of Christmas, if you will. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. And this deals with what we refer to as the incarnation of Christ. When Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became man. So let me pray for us. Father, we love You and we can't thank You enough for what You have done for us. That You sent Your Son Jesus to die for us and to save us, Lord. And to secure for us a place with You in Heaven forevermore. And here and now, Lord, it is our joy to know You and to praise You, to learn of You, God, and to walk with You day by day here in this life. Looking forward to the next... So we praise You, Father. We praise You. We ask now as we consider this most glorious text that You would speak to our hearts. That You would open our eyes to behold marvelous, wonderful things from Your Word. And we thank You, God, for how powerful and profound this truth is. And I pray, God, that we would all be encouraged, challenged, blessed as we dig into this text. So we thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen, amen. All right, so this text is a pretty deep text, I will say. Um, it just is what it is. And uh, sometimes, you know, there's a, I heard a, a, a professor one time talking about different kinds of pastors. And he named this one particular pastor. He said, you've got the deep pastor. I mean, that guy is just deep. He's so deep. His people don't even know what he's talking about. Sometimes God doesn't even know what that guy's talking about. Right? And so that's certainly not my my, uh, intention today. This is a deep text and I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, But it is so beautiful. It is so profound. And as I said, this deals with the theology of the fact that God became man. God became man. And so Paul is writing to the Philippian church. And he is incarcerated. And they sent a love gift to him there where he was uh, in jail in Rome. And he sends this letter back to them uh, as somewhat of a, a thank you letter to thank them for their graciousness and their kindness towards him while he was incarcerated for the Gospel. But he also deals with a couple of other things. And one of the big themes of this book is that of joy. Dealing with joy some 13 times in four chapters you'll find Uh, some form of that word joy. But there's another theme found here and it's unity. It's unity. And so, Paul is going to make an appeal to the, the Philippians here. He's going to appeal to them that they would be unified. And then he's going to give an example of humility. The greatest example that we could ever imagine and that is Jesus. So. Paul, he usually will start with doctrine, with theology in his writings, and then he'll come behind it and give practical application, right? In light of these truths, how should we live? But this time he's going to reverse that and he's going to start with the practical, a call for humility and unity, and then he's going to give the greatest example of that that this world has ever known. And he's going to use the incarnation of Jesus Christ that God became man that God would humble Himself in such a way. In light of that, we too ought to be humble. How can we not be humble when we see the humble King? When we consider what Jesus Christ did? And so with this, we're dealing with the idea that Jesus is God. I think most of us in here understand that. We believe that to be true. That may be very new to you today to hear that. But the core Christian belief is that Jesus Christ... Is not just a teacher, a good teacher. He's not just a prophet, not just a a good man. He is God in the flesh. He has existed from all of eternity past in the uh, the Trinity, the triune Godhead. And that at a certain point in time, He entered into time and space. He entered in as a man so that He could save us, so that He could rescue sinful mankind. And so that's what we see happening in this text today. So, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul's going to start with a plea for unity. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So as I said, unity is, is the theme of this book. And... He takes it up here, but this already began in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, "...only let your conduct be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel." And then again in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, "...I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind and the Lord." And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the Gospel. So this is Paul's appeal to unity. And he says that the the motivation for this ought to be love, fellowship, affection, and mercy. He said if these things are happening, and he's not really questioning whether these things exist, he's more or less saying because these things are true of you, I appeal to you, be of the same mind. Be like minded. Paul says, fulfill my joy. Fulfill my joy by being of the same mind. Now, if I were to ask you what is the ideal church, if you were to ask really anybody that, they're going to begin to give you a list. And they're going to name things possibly like a great worship band, okay? Or maybe the, the pastor is, is uh, funny and charismatic and dynamic or a children's program, they're going to name these things to you, but the reality is what Paul said would make his joy complete. What would make him so very happy would to see a church that is unified. A church that dwells in unity. And then he says to be like-minded. This literally means to think the same way. There's something that draws us together here. There's something that makes us family. There's something that we all hold to. And what is that? It is Christ our Lord, Christ our Savior, Christ our King. We love Him, we worship Him, we adore Him, and we come together to learn of Him and to serve Him and to bless His name. We think the same way on that. He says to be have the same love. The same love. And this is unbiased, unconditional love towards, uh, towards each person. That's kind of challenging, isn't it? I mean, some people are more lovable than others, Right? I mean, we may love everybody, but we don't necessarily like everybody, right? But Paul says, no, that's not an option. We are to have the same love for everyone. We are to be of the same mind. We are to have the same love. We are to be of one accord. One accord. This, uh, this is a, a phrase that we think Paul may have actually coined, and it literally means one-souled. One-souled. and is to have the same desires, same passions, same ambitions. And to be of one mind, that is intent on one purpose. Paul says, "This is what I desire for you. This is what would give me the greatest joy to see a church that is living like this, a church that is walking like this." And this is a real challenge, is it not? And uh, you know when this really counts? You know when when unity like this, when love like this, really counts? It counts when you're offended. It accounts when maybe you feel overlooked. Maybe we feel misunderstood. Because that happens to all of us. And then we have a choice to make. Are we going to be like Christ in that are we going to humble ourselves? Are we going to be like-minded, have the same love for each other? Well, this was Jesus' prayer for the church. This was Jesus' prayer for us. In John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone. This is Jesus speaking and praying. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. That they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that You sent Me and the glory which You gave Me I have given them. That they may believe that they may be one just as We are one. I in them and You in Me that they may be made perfect and one. You're picking up a theme here? And that the world may know that You have sent Me and have loved them as You have loved Me. That was Jesus' prayer for us. Those who would believe through the Word of the apostles, the disciples. Two thousand years later, here we are. We've gathered together in Jesus' name. And His prayer for us is unity. And then He says that's how the world is going to know That is how the world is going to know that God sent Him. Is that if we can dwell together in love and in unity. And so that is essentially what Paul is pointing to here. How Jesus became flesh and dwelt among His people. That that humility. And so verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. These are some powerful verses here. And There's a negative command and a positive command that is given. It's kind of the idea of take off and put on that Paul talks about in Ephesians. and He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So we're not to be motivated by selfish ambition or conceit. We're not to be motivated by personal gain or empty glory. We're not to be motivated by those things as the church. We're not to be living for those things. Instead, what are we to do? We are to esteem others as more important than ourselves and to serve each other with intentionality. And so we're no longer living solely for ourselves, for our own interests, for our own good, but we are striving to serve and love and live for the, the greater good of the body of Christ. To esteem others as more important than ourselves even. To elevate others' needs and interests above our own welfare. And so that's what a unified church looks like. A church that has one mind, one accord, the same love. You know, I remember the first time I ever heard this this verse taught. I was a new believer, and I was in South Carolina, and at that time, I was living um, actually right next door to the pastor of the church. And so uh, we would always leave at the same time each week, and I noticed that somehow he always got to church before I did. And so one Sunday, I thought, okay, I'm going to beat this guy today. And so as I'm pulling out of the driveway, I just gunned it, you know. And so I, uh, I'm i Weaving around the turns, and you know, I was a new believer, so y'all just have to forgive me on this, alright? I was getting a little crazy out there. And so I, uh, I finally cut out in front of him and uh, made it to the church. And I pulled into the church, and I'm doing my little victory dance. I beat the guy, and I pulled up right in front of his office, and I noticed that he just kept going. And he went all the way to the back of the church, out of the parking lot, into like the gravel area out back, and parked And something just didn't sit right uh, with me on that. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I just felt a little uneasy. And so uh, during the service, he's teaching this text, talking about esteeming others as greater than yourself, looking out for the interest of others. And uh, I was sitting in the back, and he just kind of paused, and he said, you know, I know who my real servants are in this church, because they always park way in the back. And I was like, "Oh, man, I knew that was for me." And he wasn't looking at me, but it was like a shotgun blast and I got hit, man, square in the chest. And so I never forgot that, you know, all these years later. Uh, that really uh, that was a lesson learned, you know. He had a great way of getting the point across. And that's really where it, it manifests itself, guys. Day by day, it's the little things. It's the mundane things. Just stopping and considering what's best for other people because we get really caught up with what's, what's good for ourselves, right? We're, we're living to that end. And uh, the, talk, the Bible talks about loving people as we love ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, from the moment we roll out of the bed, we're thinking about what's good for us. And usually for I think a lot of us, it's beeline to the coffee pot. That's the first good idea of the day, right? And so if we were to take that same intentionality and consider how can we serve other people, how can we be a blessing to other people, we would do very well in the church. So now Paul is going to give us the greatest example of that in human history. The deepest, most profound example of humility that we could ever know. And that is the humiliation of Christ Himself. That Jesus who dwelt in heavenly glory would leave that behind and He would come to this earth and He would live a life of quiet humility and obscurity for 30 years. And then He would go off into His public ministry for a few years there and then He would ultimately die the most horrific death imaginable for me and for you. And so Paul says if Jesus can do all of that, the least we can do is consider the welfare of those near us. And so, verse 5, he says, "...let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So one of the first things that we see in these few verses here is the pre-existence of Christ. First he says we're to have the mind of Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ in this matter when it comes to humility. And then he says, who being in the form of God... This word being here, it it speaks of the fact that He already existed. It's not that Jesus came into existence. He pre-existed with the Father. And the Scriptures are very clear about that in a number of other places. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God, and He was in the beginning with the Father. Before, Before creation, before time and space, He already existed in heavenly glory with the Father and the Spirit and being in the form of God. Notice that word there. who Being in the form of God. There's a couple of different words that are used for form in the New Testament. One is morphe. That is the word here. And the other is schema, which we would get the word schematic. So the idea here that Jesus existed in the form of God, uh, it means that it's an outward expression that embodies inner substance. Jesus existed in the very nature and essence. He was the very nature and essence of God. It was not merely an outward appearance. You understand? It wasn't that somehow he looked like God or, or was a, a created being, as some people would say, but he was God himself. He existed in the very essence of God. And while we know that, this is what this Word is trying to say is because it's found again in a few verses where it says that He existed in the form of a servant. He came in the form of a servant. Jesus didn't just look like a servant. He wasn't just wearing servant garments. He was the essence of a servant. You understand? He was the embodiment of what it means to be a servant. So in the same way, Jesus existed, pre-existed in the form of God's very essence and nature of who God is. Colossians 1.15 says that he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the express image of his person. The New American Standard translate, translates it like this He is the exact representation of his nature. And then the ESV says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. And so. One of the reasons why this is important is because we have to understand just how low Jesus came. He was God Himself. He dwelt with God in triune perfection from all of eternity past and He condescended from that point. He was the very image of the invisible God. Now, this idea of image here, you may think of something like pressing a coin into putty and when you remove it, you have the exact image of that coin in the putty. You understand? Sometimes we may think about twins, for, exa- uh, for instance. You may see identical twins. You've never met them. Uh, and so to you, they really look identical in every way. You would not be able to tell one from the other. But the more that you spend time with them, the more you begin to notice differences in their behavior, their personality. Obviously, their parents would know them apart very well. That is not the same thing here with Jesus. He was exactly the same, the image of God in every single way. And in John chapter 14, it says this Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? So Jesus said, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. You have seen the very essence, the very nature of God Himself. Now, God is Spirit. No one's ever seen Him at any time. So it doesn't mean that Jesus was the physical uh, image of God, but He was the very essence and nature of God in person. Jesus is the perfect communication to us of who the Father is. Did you know that? In John chapter 1 it says, in the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God and the Word was God. I quoted that just a moment ago. I think the best way to understand that is what I just said. Jesus is the perfect communication to man of the Father. He is the perfect articulation of the Father's heart to us. He is the exact representation of God. And then it says, He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal to God. You know, unfortunately, the King James, the New King James, I don't think that this is the most helpful way to translate this. To say that he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. I, I used to think what that meant was is that he didn't, it wasn't as though Jesus were stealing or taking something away from God to claim equality. It was not an assault or an affront to who God is for Jesus to claim equality with the Father. And that is true. And that does make sense, but that's not what this word here means. The original uh, word robbery, it it meant something seized by robbery. It later came to mean anything clutched or embraced or prized. Uh, Some of the other translations, the ESV, the New American Standard, say that um, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or clutched or held on to. And so that's the idea. Though Jesus existed in eternity past in heavenly glory with the Father, he didn't cling to that. He didn't grasp at it. He let that go. He let that go, and for a time he came to earth and he dwelt among men in the very form and image of of man. But he says that he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. Now, the the Greek word here for reputation is kenosis. And it literally means um, he made himself or he emptied himself. Excuse me. He made himself nothing or he emptied himself. Now there are some false teachings that are happening in the day and age that we live that deal with this. It's called the kenosis. Uh, Theory or kenosis theology, that Jesus emptied Himself of His divinity. That Jesus was not actually God when He came to earth. He was purely a man. And that everything that He did, He did in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why that is so important to them is because that gives us basically the ability to say the same. That we are only humans, but just as Jesus was purely a human, Operating in the power of the Spirit, the the same is true for us, and that we can do the same things Jesus did, and that's a, that's a, actually a popular teaching that's going on out there right now, and that is a misrepresentation, that is a twisting of this scripture right here. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity; he could not, for a nanosecond, be anything less than God. You understand, Jesus was fully God and He could be nothing less. To cease to be God for even a second would mean that He was never God in the first place and certainly is not now. So you have to understand that when He emptied Himself, He did not empty Himself of His own divinity, of of being God. I've heard it said, it's not what He emptied Himself of, but what He emptied Himself into. Sometimes it's referred to as emptying or... Subtraction by addition. He took on another nature. He took on human nature. And so this is what we refer to as the dual nature of Christ. That God became man. And He submitted Himself to the confines and limitations of human weakness. And so, uh, you've heard me refer to this before. It's, it's called the hypostatic union of Christ. And that is to say that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Sometimes fully God, fully man. And so, both of those are very important to us. Very important that Jesus is both. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I, I just wanted to take a moment for our history folks in here. I know I've got some history buffs in the room. And so, this is for you. I had you in mind. And... Uh, I had to write a paper on this uh, one time on uh, the dual natures of Christ. It was actually a creed that was uh, written um, regarding this very thing, the Chalcedonian Creed. And there were a number of heresies that sprung up. This was under attack from the very beginning. And, And even to this day it remains under attack. The idea of the dual nature of Christ. People have a problem with that. It's clear in the Scriptures, but for one reason or another, people will distort this very thing. So I thought I would just share with you quickly a list of these heresies throughout church history that have tried to attack this very thing that we hold so dear. Docetism. Docetism was uh, the first one to spring up in the first century. And this was the idea that Jesus actually only appeared to be a human. That He was God, but He was more of a phantom being. And so there were legends that when Jesus was walking with the disciples, uh, there were no footprints on the ground because He was just a phantom being. And that would be a real problem for us because then there could not have been a flesh and blood sacrifice on the cross if Jesus was only a phantom being, right? So you understand why these things can be uh, so problematic if you buy into them. The next one was Ebionism. This is sometimes referred to as Corinthianism. And the idea here was that Jesus was only a man until His baptism, and then the Spirit came upon Him, and then He was man and God, but then on the cross, the Spirit departed, and He was just man again. And that sounds strikingly similar to the kenosis theory that is being really put out there today. So these things will repeat themselves throughout church history, and they'll be repackaged in different ways, and that's why it's important for us to know a little bit about church history and to understand these things. The next one was Arianism. And this was that Jesus was simply created by God. He was a God, but He was not of the same essence or nature as the God. There was a time when He did not exist and that God created Him. That is Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. Uh, that's, That's what they believe. That is their view regarding Jesus. That He is a God, but He's not the one true God. And they reject the idea of Trinitarianism And this existed back in 325 A.D. and it's still being put forth today. The next was Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. This was that Jesus did have a flesh body, but He didn't have a human nature. Uh, He was just a God nature in flesh and blood um, and that was it. And when that was rejected, it was understood that Jesus didn't come to simply redeem our human bodies. He came to redeem our humanness, our humanity, our, our nature, the very essence of who we are. The next one was Nestorianism. This was probably one of my favorites. It was two Jesuses in one body. And so it, Jesus had multiple personality disorder. And so there was this conflict always happening over which Jesus was going to get His way. That was obviously rejected. And then the last one is uh, Eutychianism, also known as monophysitism. And this is that the two natures combined created a third nature. So there were three natures going on at one time. And so the two, the human and the God nature combined creating a third. Again, rejected uh, as heresy and thrown out. But I I just point these things out to say that this has been under attack from the very beginning because these are very special and beautiful and glorious truths to the Christian. And it is Gospel truth. It is Gospel necessary. Why? Why? Because one, Jesus had to be fully God. Jesus had to come and be fully God so that He could be perfect. So that He could live a perfect life that we cannot live. We all know in this room that we fall short. We fell multiple times daily and have for as far back as we can remember. But not so with Jesus. Jesus. He was perfect in every single way. And the only way that He could do that, the only person who is capable of doing that is God Himself. So He had to be God in the flesh. This one, I would add to that, and this makes sense to me, um, I've heard it said that you know there was a, it was necessary for there to be an infinite payment to appease the wrath of an infinitely holy God. You have the infinitely holy God who has been offended by sin. And the the death of a human would not appease that. And so it took the death of an infinitely perfect God to appease the wrath of an infinitely holy God. That's kind of a deep thing to to consider. Now, conversely, Jesus was truly man. We know this to be, uh, be crystal clear in the Scriptures. Jesus was truly human. He wept. He experienced exhaustion, hunger, thirst, anxiety to the point of sweating blood. You remember even when he was on the cross and he was suffering under the wrath of God, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he even cried out to God from the cross, questioning why God, why have you forsaken me? That is Jesus crying out in his humanity. His humanity was so very real. And we're told in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 that therefore in all things He had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. And so Jesus coming and experiencing true humanity, He was tempted in every way except... He did not sin, but He can relate. He can understand our pain. He can understand our burdens. We have a faithful and a sympathetic high priest who is able to aid us uh, when we are in need. But we're told also that it was necessary so that He could be the propitiation for our sin. That's a a fancy way of saying a payment. Or to satisfy the the, uh, righteous requirements of God. Jesus was the propitiation. He was the payment on our behalf by dying in our place. Jesus substituted in our place. Jesus took our place and He suffered under the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. That's the good news of the Gospel. That God is holy, infinitely holy, and we are not. We are sinful people. We have made numerous mistakes. We have fallen short. Sometimes accidentally and sometimes very willfully. But that is true of every one of us in this room. It is who we are. It is how we are. And so we have to give an account to a holy God for our transgression, for our sin. But God is also loving. God is merciful. God is gracious. And God desires that we would turn and that we would be forgiven and that we would be saved. So, God made a way through His Son dying on the cross in our place so that sin was punished and grace was extended freely so that God could be both just and the justifier of the wicked, of the sinner. So our sin was placed upon Jesus and judged on the cross. And Jesus' righteous life was accredited to us. And so when God sees us, He sees the perfection of Jesus. He doesn't see me He doesn't see my tainted works. He doesn't see my failures, my shortcomings, my deliberate disobedience at times. He sees the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf and He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Amen? That is the glory of the Gospel. And in order for Jesus to do that, He had to be fully God. He had to be fully man. Well, it says that He took the form of a servant. And we're going to really see the condescension of Christ here from glory to shame. Though He was equal with God, though He dwelt in total equality with the Father, He condescended. He condescended. He traded that glory in for shame. He went from being a heavenly king to an earthly slave. You understand? He didn't go from being a heavenly king to an earthly king. He went so much lower than that. He took the form of a servant. He took the form of a slave. And in every single way, He embodied that. He was the very essence of what it meant to be a servant. In John 6.38, He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. Jesus lived to do the will of another. Jesus was sent. And so He was subservient to the sender. And He said that My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me. That was what Jesus lived for. And then in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, 27, it says, Jesus speaking, who is greater? He who sits at the table or He who serves? Is it not He who sits at the table, yet I am among you as the one who serves? I, mean, I can't think of a more graphic picture than that of when He washed the disciples' feet. You know, they're sitting there at the table. They're arguing amongst themselves about who is going to be the greatest. Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom while Jesus quietly excused himself from the table, took a basin of water and a towel, and he began to wash the feet of all the the disciples at the table. That was the task of the lowliest house slave. And Jesus took that upon Himself while His disciples, the one that He came to save, were arguing over who was the greatest. The one who truly was the greatest at the table took the place of the lowest slave and washed their feet. We're told that He came in the likeness of men. Second Corinthians 8-9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. That through His poverty you might become rich. Jesus condescended. I don't mean that in the sense that we understand that typically. When someone is trying to encourage you or pat you on the back and you think that's very condescending of you to talk to me like that. That's not the idea here. It's that Jesus, the heavenly King, would come down and be an earthly slave and go even so much lower than that. That is the condescension of Christ. Jesus went as low as He could possibly go. He came from a place of glory that our minds could never even fathom or understand and He condescended to the lowest place for us, for us, for love's sake. Jesus experienced shame and scorn beyond measure. He was betrayed and abandoned by those who were closest to Him. He was betrayed by Judas, betrayed with a kiss, and abandoned by His disciples. He was falsely accused and tried by mere men. The God of all creation is sitting there being judged and tried by sinful, wicked men who are only out to get Him. He was punched He was spit on. His beard was ripped out. He was whipped. He had the crown of thorns forced on His head. He had to carry His own cross. He was stripped naked and nailed to the cross. He was mocked. Mocked by all the people around Him. He bore our sins on His body on that cross and endured the judgment of God there in that place. You know, just think about just a few of these things. Think about betrayal and abandonment. I think that a lot of us in this room have probably experienced that. You know what it's like to be betrayed? You know what it's like to be abandoned? You know what it feels like to be rejected? It's a horrible feeling, is it not? And then to be mocked. Have you ever been mocked before? I mean, those things in and of themselves are so awful. And the beautiful, holy Son of God came down and He went through that and so much more. All the physical suffering that He experienced. The separation from God the Father from all of eternity for the first time there upon the cross. I believe that was the thing that drove Jesus to sweat blood in the garden. It was not the cross itself. Not the horror of the excruciating pain so much as the judgment of God that would be poured out on him because all he had known from eternity past was perfect love and unity with his Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. And now, he's being judged by his Father on the cross for our sake. That is the condescension of Christ. He did that for us. That's what the Incarnation is. When we talk about Jesus in the manger, that's what that represents. That... God became flesh. God became man and dwelt amongst His people and would ultimately die for His people. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus did all of this for us and He did it for love And we're told that He endured the cross despising the shame that He suffered and underwent, but He did it for what? For the joy that was before Him. And what would the joy that was before Him be? That's us. That is the church. The people for which He came to die. That was what was in His mind. That was what was in His eye. was the people that would be saved because of this incredible sacrifice. The people that would be with Him in the eternal glory And worshiping him forever and ever. That was the joy that was set before him. So Jesus did that for us. He was not a victim. This was all God's plan. He submitted himself to it. He left his heavenly glory, took the form of a servant, and he died the most horrific death, shame and scorn beyond measure, but he did it for love. He did it for us. And then he was exalted. He cried out, it is finished, upon the cross. Everything that was necessary for salvation had been accomplished. He breathed His last. He was taken off the cross, put in a grave. Three days later, He rose again from the grave, victorious over sin, over death. Amen? And we know that He's been exalted to the highest place. He went from glory to shame and back to glory. He went from the highest place to the lowest place and back to the highest place. He did what the Father sent Him to do. He accomplished the work of the Father. He secured salvation for us. And now He's been exalted. Verse 9, Therefore, God also highly exalted Him and has given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus isn't in the manger anymore. This is the time of year where we like the nativity scene and and we have those kinds of things out and we consider the birth of Christ. But He's not in the manger. And you know what? He's not on the cross. For a lot of people, Jesus is still hanging on that cross. Anytime that they consider Jesus, there's that representation of Him on the cross, but He's not there. And He is certainly not in the tomb. He is not in the tomb. He is risen and He is exalted. And He has been given the name that is above every single name. There is no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. There is no more beautiful and precious name than the name of Jesus. And all will confess His name. And all will bow the knee on heaven and on earth and below the earth. There will come a time when everyone will know and everyone will bow. But praise God that we have chosen to bow here and now. We have already confessed the greatness of His name and that we love Him and that we adore Him and that He is Lord of all and He is the Lord of our lives. And our lives ought to be shaped. Our lives ought to be marked by the Incarnation. By the fact that God became man. God humbled Himself in such a way to, to span this chasm that is unimaginable to us. So we ought to do the same. We ought to walk in humility just like our Lord and Savior Jesus. He who was the humble King and became the servant of all, we too are to be the servant of all, and not least of which each other here in the church. Our lives should be marked and shaped by the exaltation of Christ, knowing that He has been exalted to the highest place and He is Lord. He is King. He is Master and He deserves all that we have and then some. Amen? He deserves all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our service, all of our obedience. And to know that because He has been exalted, we too shall be exalted in God's timing. We too will dwell with them one day with the Father, with Jesus and the Spirit and heavenly glory. And we will worship them in perfection and we long for that day. We long for the day when we will see Him as He is and we will worship Him in glory forever. Amen? Amen. That's the incarnation. It's glorious. It's so much deeper than our minds can truly grasp. But Jesus did that for us. He condescended. He became like man and He died in man's place and has been exalted to the right hand. So salvation has been made possible. And So when we consider Christmas, that's what it's all about when we consider the nativity scene and the baby in the manger, when we consider all of those things, this is what it's all about. This glorious mystery, this marvelous, wonderful reality of the incarnation that God became man. What man could not do for himself, God did for man in that He became man and did it in our place. Amen? Well, I'm going to pray and we'll just go ahead and close at this point. Father, we love You. We thank You for the Incarnation. We thank You for what You did for us in sending Your Son. Jesus, we thank You that though You dwelt in heavenly glory, You didn't cling to that. You didn't grasp at it. You walked away from it willingly. And You took the form of a servant. You came to this earth in the appearance of, of, of sinful men even. And You humbled Yourself all the way to the point of the cross. But You've been exalted. And we exalt you, Lord. We honor you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, Merry Christmas.